Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Woodzik, and my pronouns are they, them, and theirs. This is episode 157 with San Francisco playwright Star Finch. I loved this conversation. We got deep really quickly, and I actually don't want to say anything more than this little introduction. I really want y'all to jump right in and enjoy the podcast. So here's episode 157 with Star Finch. Enjoy. I'm very excited to welcome a really unique playwright with a dynamic voice to the podcast. Star, welcome to the podcast. I'm overjoyed to be here. (laughs) So for folks who are encountering you for the first time on the podcast, how do you introduce yourself when you meet new artistic folks? I am Star Finch, a playwright and a mother who is very much a product of my soil, born and raised in San Francisco, California. I love that introduction. And it's rare for me. I've read a lot of bios from a lot of theater artists over the years. I viscerally felt the opening line of your bio. So I'd love to talk about that. You write about how you're trying to hold ground amidst the erasure of gentrification. That's the Mm -hmm. phrase where... I felt it in my solar plexus. I feel a lot of artists can relate to that. What strategies have had the greatest impact against that erasure? And how does that theme inform and appear in your work? You know, it's funny. There's there's sort of two parts to my response. I, I think the most honest and present answer would be that I wrote, you know, I wrote that bio and a lot of stuff on my website prior to 2020, right? Prior to COVID. I don't know if you've had this experience where you come across stuff that you've said and done prior to 2020, and it just feels like a whole other time or a whole other, um, I I don't even know, like it, 2020 was just such a portal, you know, that I went through that my family went through. And I came out the other side, just with a, with a different sort of consciousness, I guess. Um, feeling like I'm on a whole other plane. So to answer that question, when I wrote that at the time, it was very much, you know, me being rooted in San Francisco. And it, you know, at the time, I thought it was really ground zero for gentrification. But now it's it's everywhere across the country, you know, everyday working people, poor people, artists are uh, are being squeezed out by the same sort of real estate developers, the same sort of corruption of local government, not really holding a safety net for its citizens type of thing. So when I wrote that at the time, those are my early works at that time were uh, I had a play called Home, which was an acronym for Hookers on Mars eventually. And that was about a sex worker that was trying to get to her son on Mars, who was with her sister who worked for Google. And I was really just trying to lay out who gets left behind in this sort of grand vision for the future and space travel and how that paralleled who was getting left behind in San Francisco. And so, you know, like on Mars, it was like you had to pay for water and air. And I was trying to bring attention to how the San Francisco had pivoted to this whole tech, everything economy. 
and how if you were poor or homeless and you didn't have a cell phone and, and Wi-Fi that you were pretty much locked out of this new world. And another play that I wrote around that time, it was supposed to go up in 2020. We were actually in rehearsals and got shut down when San Francisco was sort of the first city to lock down for COVID. And that was called Side Effects. And that play was um, centered around the marijuana industry in San Francisco and a character, you know, was sent away for marijuana, you know, sales and comes back and is sort of mind blown that now it's legal. It's like a big business and her neighborhood has been gentrified and she's trying to make sense of the world around her. So I say that to say that's where my heart was at that time where I was, you know, trying to fight back and, and push against erasure and um, use my work to do that by very much centering the storylines and the characters in San Francisco. But now on the other side of so much change and transition, I'm realizing how subconsciously a lot of that intention was really rooted in sort of trying to educate or awaken, you know, white audiences. I don't think that's something I was consciously doing, but I think that was a subconscious angle. And I'm at the point now where I just feel like when you're pushing back against erasure, you're probably already erased pretty much by that point, you know, and it, and the work can just feel like an exhibit in a museum. Like, you know, we were once here, you know, we once lived and thrived here and we have been pushed off the land, you know, in a cycle of the way this whole country exists because of who we pushed off the land type of thing. And I've also really have come to a place of real trying to find some sort of reevaluation and realignment around this idea of representation being progress and this, um, this model of, you know, we need a seat at the table type of thing. I, I really have turned away from that completely, especially here in San Francisco. I won't get too deep into like local politics, but just in the last couple of years in San Francisco, there's been the development of what I would call sort of multicultural fascism. And a lot of it is funded by, you know, outside right-wing think tanks and and billionaire donors to put up these sort of astroturf movements that resulted in our progressive DA being recalled, that resulted in progressive members of our school board being recalled. And now across the Bay in Alameda, they're current, it's the same sort of people going after a black woman progressive DA in Alameda. So you have this thing where it's the same sort of white supremacy and fascist sort of demonization and criminalization of the homeless or the poor or drug addicts, but it's coming out of the mouths of POC or queer people or any combination (laughs) that you can muster of representation. And it, it has been so disheartening and, has just left me in a place of, of not, of just a lot of questions for myself and for my work, because it's like, you know, just sort of checking off these representation boxes is not the path toward liberation at all. Like, you know, because of gentrification, San Francisco now has 
a black population of around 5%. And I just saw an article in the paper about how just in 2023 thus far, the black population has made up 44% of sort of violent encounters with the police or, or use of force encounters with the police. And this is happening when we, where we have a black mayor, we have a black DA, we have a black chief of police. And, you know, even over in Atlanta, right, that's like, has always been considered the black Mecca where you have the stop cop city movement and, you know, a peace, peaceful protesters have been labeled terrorists and have been murdered, you know, and that's a city that also has a black mayor and a, and a black police chief. And, you know, the city council is primarily black. So I'm just at a place where sort of all the things that I've been told my whole life were the path or the way or the thing to aim for feel very empty. And I, and so I'm, I'm just sort of walking through this, this dark unknowing place um, of trying to figure out, okay, what, what else can I be doing with my work? Because it, it, I think the erasure route and the representation route just feels very hollow to me at the, at the moment and not a path forward, you know, into a future that I very much want for my children and for my fellow human beings, you know? Absolutely. I really appreciate you being so candid because I think as an industry, we can have a bit of an, gosh, naive Pollyanna-ish attitude of this work stops with representation. Mm -hmm. Like we have, you know, we bring people to the table. That's all we need to do. And there's so much more to these cultural conversations, especially in theater if you're willing to, I would love to dig into what this idea of walking away from the concept of let's make sure, you know, representation. How have you, if you're comfortable sharing, how have you pivoted and what strategies have you found artistically serve your artistic mission better than that sort of overarching narrative that we're sometimes fed? Well, it's definitely something that I'm still figuring out for sure, myself. Sure. <laughs> but I will say that in my most uh, current work, I'm really trying to figure out how to use my work to activate the humanity in a room at like a molecular level. Like, I just, I feel like art and creativity are, you know, they're a portal. And theater is one of those last places where you have people from different backgrounds and different ages willing to come into a space and really listen, right? It's not about sort of watching and flipping and scrolling. Like it's really a space of listening. And for me, that, that has always been seen as a sacred space. My path into playwriting was a spiritual one. And so that's the path that I have have walked, you know, just one of where spirit and creativity meet for me. And I will say like just in the last month, you know, the month of October, I've been very shattered and enraged. Like many people, you know, watching a genocide through our phone, mm. being out protesting and seeing really the world 
say we we need to call a ceasefire. You like this needs to stop this complete evil destruction and murder and genocide. And uh, the government is like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. We're actually going to continue and up the money, in fact. And so I felt so powerless and at the same time very much connected on a human planet level, a global level. It's not like I, you know, I came up in San Francisco. I've been going to protest since I was in a stroller. Like, it's not like I live some sort of naive, sheltered life. And yet, this country has managed to reveal yet another layer of evil for me, which sort of took me by surprise. I think because it's not that I ever, it's not like I thought, oh, the Democrats are the good guys. (laughs) But I did think, well, at least we're not evil. Like, at least we have that, right? So, so having Biden, you know, sort of swoop in from the Trump years, and we were supposed to sort of have this breath to breathe again and, and figure out what was next. So to have the Democrats sort of across the board supporting this funding of genocide and doubling down on it and really dehumanizing all of these deaths of, of not only just civilians, but children, you know, like literal babies and toddlers. Like I've seen so many images that I'm forever changed by. And it's just, I just, I feel, I feel shattered in a way, not to say like, oh, poor me, I'm on the floor kind of thing, but just shattered and like, oh, okay, I have to put my sort of understanding back together again. And that is okay. Like that's part of life. That's definitely part of the human experience. And especially if you're an artist or creative in some way. But I just think like the overall silence of the theater community, the silence of a lot of academic spaces, or if not silence, then silencing the sort of young people who are stepping up and having something to say, the punishing of different people. Yeah, you know, it's just been, it it really shook me and and I'm really disillusioned with a lot of things. And like I said, I'm just in a place of questions. You know, I think that, and it's funny too, I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit, but this year has sort of been the best year of my career thus far. Like this year has been a lot of things lining up and feeling like, yes, you know, I'm ready to really take off. Like these things are just so great. And And, you know, October rolled around and I just, I don't know, I'm in a, I I just feel very less sure about everything and anything. And I just, I'm, I'm in a place of, of questions and, and wanting to figure out just how to make connections that are rooted in, in liberation, you know, from every angle for everyone. And I, and I don't know. I don't know that, I mean, theater isn't magic and everything, you know, like you try to put on a play, it takes, it takes forever to happen, you know? So I don't know what theater can be doing in real time necessarily, but for me, it's just the silence um, of a lot of different sort of cultural places that I, that I, I I thought were sort of beacons of, of, of hope and um, dreaming a future. 
I, I'm just, I'm just feeling very sort of um, lost and, and trying to put things back together with, but also with, I don't want to say hope, you know, because that is just so overused, but I would just say with a trust in the people that I have seen speaking out, the people that I have seen, you know, hitting the streets, the people that I have seen doing whatever they can to not let this moment be normalized, you know, business as usual. Right. I'm I'm resonating with so much of what you're saying and that phrase of rebuilding one's understanding really hit me, uh, hit me in the feels. Do you think that as theater artists, we are primed to practice empathy, conditioned to be more empathetic and therefore were maybe impacted a bit more emotionally by these, especially this year, it seems like a rolling ongoing, you know, what's going to be the next humanitarian crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you think that if you're, if you're open to talking about theater artists and empathy and things on a global scale, that's, I'm right there with you in a lot of the spots. And I think it's sometimes it's helpful for me to acknowledge that, we process the world a bit differently as theater artists. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that silence is even more deafening because of that. Yes. Yes, for sure. I mean, I think obviously everyone is going to have their own angle into processing this moment, right? Like if you're Palestinian, you're going to have a very specific angle into this. If you're, if you're a Muslim, if you're a Middle Eastern, if you're someone who's always been an organizer and, ha- and who's already been rallying and organizing around this cause for, you know, decades, you're you're going to have a certain thing. I've noticed it, you know, even in my family, like my kids, my husband, they all know what's up. You know, we're a very um, political family as far as speaking about world events and what's going on. And, and they've gone to marches with me. But it definitely has hit me like just to the, you know, I'm, it's to the core, like, like you said, the empathy, the feeling. And also I think a lot of artists, especially playwrights, I've found in conversations with other playwrights that we often tend to not so much foresee, but in our work, we'll find that we were writing about something. And then, you know, two to three years later, it comes to pass or it's current now, or, you know, that sort of thing. So I'm very aware that like my, the depth of my sort of, you know, like I, (laughs) for the month of, you know, from October 7th onward, like I, I've been crying daily. I've been crying at the sight of children on the streets. I've been crying. Just my heart has been so tender. I've been having, you know, I I was saying, I don't know if it's when there was um, the children's hospital was bombed and, Mm. um, and Netanyahu that day had said something about we're forces of light fighting forces of evil or something. And it was like, so there was this vigil at Dolores Park that night. And, and I went with my family. Like I had to go out. I had to feel like I was among other people who were seeing just how wrong this was on every level. And I just, I ha- I've been having like, I don't know if it's like panic attacks or just my heart skipping. My chest is constantly tight. And so for me in how i process the world and how I filter information and how I and how I work like I think that I'm mourning this moment I'm enraged by how 
the will of the people literally has no impact on what our government chooses to do or not do. But beyond that, I think that I am sensing what is still to come, Mm. the ramifications of this, the ramifications of our involvement, our silence, um, such massive loss of life of children, and our own upcoming presidential election in this country. Like I, I don't have sight where I can predict what's going to happen. As I said, I am in a, I am stripped down to a place of questions. I do not pretend to have the answers to anything, but I am sensing just that there are just going to there's so much chaos still to come. You know, there is so much more that is going to happen because of the decisions of this country and just the sense of like, there are people who are feeling this so deeply in their soul and bones. There are people who are sort of just now getting the information and just now sort of waking up and getting hip to things and and they're curious and maybe they're doing their own research. And there are also a lot of people who are just going about their lives and are completely tuned out and feel like this does not involve them in any way they're not it's not slowing down what they have and what they're doing and it just seems clear to me that there's a lot more to come you know in this country and the direction that that we're headed you know because there's been so much fascism here like I said in San Francisco the sort of multicultural fascism has been on full display but it might be less multicultural throughout California, but it's also trickled down all through California with these school boards. There's like these right wing groups that are traveling from like school board meeting to school board meeting, city council meeting to city council meeting, trying to do these recalls. There's, you know, I've seen like different posts about the 10 steps of genocide in relation to the Palestinian situation. But also if you look at those early steps, like California, Texas, Florida, People have been using a lot of that language towards trans children, the trans community. So it's like, uh, this is here. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, we didn't vote it out. We are not going to be voting it out in our next election. Like, we need other things happening. And I I don't know if, if, if people are as aware of sort of how high the waters are rising. And that's not even throwing in, like, the the climate crisis you know and yeah we're, we're just on this fast track toward the edge it just feels like the edge of this cliff which on one side is like okay yeah it feels like the empire is falling as it should <laughs> this is not tenable for any of us you know the, none of us are free under this system no matter how much we shop and tell ourselves that, you know, if we just get this big payday, everything's going to be all right. That is not the case. And so it's just about like, where are we building our wings? Where are we organizing? Where are we finding our community, our mutual aid? It's like these words that are just, I think they're just buzzwords for a lot of people like, oh, community. But it's like, no, it's like, that's the deepest thing there is. And just figuring out my brain is just constantly wondering, you know, like what is, what is next and how do we build that together? And, and, and I don't know what theater's role is in that, you know, this is my theater feels like my calling. It's the path that I'm taking through this life 
time to express myself, to express my understanding of the world, to hopefully create environments where human beings in an audience can feel connected or understand themselves better or understand the world better for a moment, you know, but it's, these are, (laughs) these are some wild times we're living in. And at the same time, I'm just like, okay, well, it's been wild (laughs) for centuries. So, you know, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how to make sense of it really. Yeah. I think this is a wonderful conversation. I think there's a lot of folks who are going to resonate with what you're saying and we're getting a lot of messaging that is so definitive and I just really encourage folks to continue to open yourself up to the questioning. I think that is a bit of the role that theater can play in terms of the narratives that we choose to put our energy towards and choose to show up for. Mm -hmm. I also appreciate you talking about that perhaps you know, whether it's a juxtaposition or cognitive dissonance of having this really full, beautiful year of your career against this backdrop. And so I hope it's not too abrupt of a transition, but I'd love to talk about what's going on in your career, being the Mellon Foundation playwright in residence at Campo Santo and Crowded Fire Theater. Can you Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about how you came to these artistic homes and what's kind of going on with each of those artistic homes currently? Yeah. So I've, my first um, sort of entryway into theater was with Campo Santo. And that came about because a friend of mine who is a DJ, uh, we were part of a crew in San Francisco called Distortion to Static. And it was a collective of DJs who had a hip hop television show and did parties and and that sort of thing. So this friend had gotten into acting mm. and um, he was acting with Camposanto and, and I was one of the people who would come out and, and support him, you know, because I was had been going to grad school and was interested in this sort of pivot of his. So, you know, fast forward a couple of years later and he invited me to come to a, Camposanto had this weekly writing group called Clica. And so he invited me to come into Klika and bring some pages. So I did that and really clicked and connected with Compo's artistic director, Sean San Jose, who now runs Magic Theater in San Francisco. And so I came and I really just never left. You know, Sean was also born and raised in San Francisco. And it was really just this magical connection, you know, finding oh, these are, these are my people, you know, this is where I'm meant to be type of thing. And so Compo produced my first play, Home. And before that, my first experience was sort of writing the text for this multidisciplinary project they had been working on called Babylon is Burning, which was an adaptation of Jeff Chang's book, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, about sort of the birth of hip hop. And Compo really became my my family, you know, in every way, on and off the stage. And from that, um, one of the actors in Home, named Lauren Spencer, one day she said to me, you know, oh, do you know Mina Marita, who runs Crowded Fire? And I was like, no, I, like, I didn't really know anybody, you know. And um, she was like, I really think 
you guys would hit it off. I really think you guys should go grab coffee or something. You know, would you be cool with me suggesting that? And I was like, you know, yeah, sure. Like I'm, I'm somebody who's like introverted. I'm like not a networker. I'm not going to go and, you know, just play the game. Like I'm, I just, I, it's not that I don't know how to do it. I, my soul isn't in it. And so I just try to avoid it where, when I can, but I trusted Lauren and, you know, and so I was like, yeah, you know, sure. Why not? So I ended up going to breakfast with Mina and also just um, naturally clicked and cl- and connected with her. And maybe a year later, or a year or two later, she ended up inviting me to be part of Crowded Fire's writing lab called R&D Lab. And that relationship built and grew very organically. And then so when it came time for apply, you know, like all theaters, they're always applying for grants. And the playwright and residency program or grant through the Mellon, you had to have the organization had to have a certain annual budget. I think I don't know if it was like 500,000. It was some number that Crowded Fire was just short of, but they had the idea to say with Sean of Camposanto, like, what if we try to apply together? you know, just, just go for it. And so they were like, yeah, you know, let's try it. And so they did this pitch, you know, within the grant application and it wasn't something that Mellon had done before. And so they were, Mellon was gracious enough to say, yeah, you know, this sounds new, this sounds innovative and let's give it a shot. So we got the grant and that has been life-changing for me, you know, as playwrights, you really don't make a lot of money you're constantly just grinding sort of alone for the most part and hoping that things happen. And so the grant provides a salary, it provides health insurance, you know, it's you're you're like, you have a job, you know, you have a legit job as a playwright. And just psychologically getting a, a steady income from my writing has given me this security that has really allowed me to just open up. Like I've been doing so much writing. I I can't even tell you. And it's really just been, you know, liberating as I think (laughs) a basic income for most people feels liberating, you know? But so with, with Camposanto as a resident company now at Magic, I just had my play Josephine's Feast go up in August. And it's about a mother, you know, I wrote it during COVID lockdown. And it's about a mother, you know, in her 50s that is also coming out of COVID, the lockdown, and just has made some connections, you know, via taking Zoom courses and and realizing that she sort of lost a lot of herself along the way. And she wants to go out and explore the world and connect with these people. And, you know, her kids are just like, what are you talking about? And so there's just chaos from this birthday dinner where she's announcing this to her family. And it was a very powerful experience. It was a great success. We got extended. I had all different sorts of people. You know, obviously, it was a play about a Black woman and a Black family. But I had people of all backgrounds and all ages. And probably most surprisingly, a lot of men come up to me and just, you know, say, like, I'm thinking about my mother in a whole other way. I'm thinking about, you know, who I have and haven't been as a partner to my spouse, how I've shown up or have not shown up. 
I had a lot of women come. It was just a moment of pure joy, you know, and people saying that it felt like medicine, that it felt like a mirror, that it was allowed them to open up conversations with their own mother or their partner. And it was a, it was a really just beautiful gift of an experience. I also got to work with my director, Ellen Sebastian Chang, and the star, Margot Hall, are both sort of local Bay Area legends who have been in the game a very long time. And, you know, Margot, she's she's like a, a goddess out here as far as acting. And she really gave me the biggest compliments opening night with a speech just saying that, like, she had never got to play a role like that, you know, a role that really let her use all of her tools and all of her gifts and all of her talents. And that was really my intention because I did write it, you know, with Margot in mind. She's also part of Composanto. She was one of the founders um, with Sean. So that was a beautiful gift. And then next year, I have a play coming up called Shipping and Handling, which will be with Crowded Fire. And that's really, um, it's, a, it's in more of an experimental zone. I'm going to be testing out a lot of the things that, you know, we've been talking about, about activating the audience and activating the space. That play was written sort of in response to seeing the play The Shipment produced at Crowded Fire. And coming out of it, you know, just feeling like, okay, if that was a shipment, you know, like who was that addressed to? And that play was by Young Jean Lee, I believe. And so this one is more about considering our humanity through a black lens in terms of AI and mm. the sort of robot future and what that means and where where we are located or not located in this sort of AI version of the future that we keep being told is inevitable. And um, I personally think, you know, I, with Elon Musk and his, and his like, you know, here in San Francisco, I just think a lot of that mindset is about, you know, cis white men feeling like they would rather have robots in control than have to have people of color or women in control, you know? So this that's a profound insight right there <laughs> yeah I, like the, it's supposed these are supposed to be the geniuses but like the lack of imagination is just mind-boggling to me in so many ways when it comes to a lot of what comes out of their mouths so yeah that will be next year with crowded fire and i also you know i did a project with both of them called the feast of resilience in 2021 and that was um me sort of curating different local black artists and for different, you know, poets and dancers and playwrights to sort of welcome us back after lockdown. It really was like that, that sort of spiritual communal artistic moment around food and performance and testimony. And it was really a beautiful thing. It felt like a wedding in a lot of ways and the marriage between Crowded Fire and Camposanto for the purposes of this grant. And so I'll be doing another feast um, sometime next year. And that one will be more centered around. I'm At this point, I'm thinking it will be the Feast of Black Technologies and how improvisation within Black culture has been sort of our safety valve, you know, our way to survive and persevere and, and thrive. But like I've said before, it's my experience has really been being sort of organically connected and plugged in 
in in ways that I didn't necessarily pursue, but, you know, just came about because of, of community and being open to, to conversation and, and connection and trying something new. I love that. And I also resonate with what you said about understanding how to play the game and how to network and also acknowledging that that doesn't feed everyone in the same way. I was hoping that you would be willing to dig into what your writing process is like. And I think I would love to hear more about how this grant has changed your writing process. And it sounds like you're a lot more prolific these days. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for all playwrights, but I know in my experience and, you know, in a lot of the conversations that I've had, we're really, we're, our starting point is just like this place of sort of like begging, you know, like, please read my play. <laughs> please give me a reading, you know, and then if you're lucky and you do get it, you get like a hundred dollars for the reading or whatever. And this, and it's always these theaters that are like, barely scraping by themselves you know it's just like I don't know the the nonprofit model the it just seems like the people who are really doing the sort of most innovative tapped in community work are are just always struggling to just stay alive as people and as you know as organizations it's so frustrating but I think that you know people are always like, oh, where's your play? Or what are you doing? Or what do you have up? And if you do have something coming up, then you feel like, yes, I am a playwright. But if it's been some time or you're still working on something or you're waiting for something, I think you just feel like you're kind of floating in this zone of, of nothingness, you know, even though as a playwright, you're probably working and thinking about anything you're writing on constantly. If there's not a production to point someone to, you can feel very... Um, invisible I guess sure uh so yeah I just I think that this grant has just made it's just validated that what I'm doing is work in a way you know in this sort of capitalist society where there there's no money involved it sort of has no value in a lot of ways or it's not real you know I just have felt like yeah this is what I'm doing and it and I am doing something, even when there's not a play up on the stage right at that moment. So I've just, I don't know, I guess it's just like a confidence, an inner confidence or an inner stability or security in some way where I've just had so, so much bubbling up and so, so many ideas that have really just been a gift, you know, in a lot of ways. And I'm really like I, I've been talking to Compo and Crowded Fire about this and trying to do something uh, because the grant we got the grant renewed for another three years. And, you know, then that's it. So this is like the sort of honeymoon, I guess, or the, you know, whatever the high point. I've been really curious about how theater and sort of exhibit space can, you know, or performance art intersect. And I don't really have language for it yet, but I've I've just been sort of getting these little visions of things. And I'm really hoping that before the three years is up, that I'm able to do something that integrates performance art and theater in more of a exhibit space 
rather than necessarily in a theater, you know, with an audience looking at a stage where it's something where you're able to walk around a space and have different experiences or interactions or interdisciplinary type things. So that's something that's been bubbling, you know, in the back of my mind and slowly putting together. But my writing process is really, you know, I write longhand. I have so many notebooks and I'm just constantly gathering, you know, whether it's me hearing a character or hearing dialogue and immediately writing that down, whether it's stuff in my dreams, you know, the minute I wake up, I write that down. Um, I try to watch a lot of different movies and documentaries and listen to a lot of music. I'm really just trying to take, you know, like filter feed everything around me and um, listen, you know, listen for what's there, listen for what's not being said and listen for what is bubbling up underneath it all with, you know, for example, with shipping and handling, I started writing that, I think in like 20, I think we had a reading for it in like 2018. And it was actually supposed to go up this year, or last year, maybe this year. And there was like, a lot of COVID outbreaks in the Bay around the time we were supposed to be going into rehearsals. And a lot of shows were closing early and Crowded Fire, you know, had said, if we start this process, and we get a, a COVID outbreak, we wouldn't be able to remount it at another time. So we ended up taking a vote and um, decided to postpone it until next year. But, you know, as things work out in the in the time in between that, you know, Elon Musk had bought Twitter and, you know, San Francisco has pivoted from tech now to, you know, from sort of generic tech and internet to AI, right? AI is the big thing in San Francisco now. That's who's buying up the office space downtown and that's the new sort of think tanks and you know ai 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 so you know that's going to happen next year and in a way at the time even though i felt sort of defeated and disappointed it's like going i think it's going to be even more right on time um you know we've had the this big thing around driverless cars in san francisco these taxis that are and you know this one brand cruise that was like crashing into everything and, and just totally causing traffic jams and hit someone. And, and it's so wild because there's so in San Francisco, there are so many condos that are built, you know, these expensive condos that are for the most part empty to get built. They have, they are, they're always saying like, Oh, we'll put these storefronts on the bottom that will be bringing in business and community. The storefronts are empty so it's just, it's just this eerie feeling of like driving around the city, seeing these, for the most part, empty high rises, these empty storefronts, and then now looking over in traffic and seeing these empty cars, these empty taxis driving around. It, it is, it's like a nightmare. I can't even tell you. So that I think has really got um, the, the driverless cars has been an issue where a lot of different people with different politics and different backgrounds sort of agree on that. You know, like, this is ridiculous. There's way too many of them on the road. Uh, the way they behave is not safe, a lot of them. And, like, what is the point of this? So I just think, you know, by next year, I think an audience is going to be sort of even more primed to dive into questioning, you know, the people in power and what their vision of the future is and, and, and how their own sort of biases and privileges in society are shaping how they think the future should go and who should be a part of it, who's worthy or not worthy of 
participating, you know? So, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just filter feeding and questioning and writing away in my notebook and hoping that, you know, I'm, I'm able to spin it into some different plays that, that have an impact. I think you're the first playwright I've encountered that writes longhand. I really, I think so. I think so. I love that image. It reminds me of, I, I did not finish my PhD program, but yeah, just all the information that I had to process and how there's just something comforting about seeing your own handwriting on a process it differently. Yeah. And I just feel like I go into a zone, like I can go into a trance and also like just the doodles and the crossing out and the pivoting from one thought to the next. And, you know, my notebooks are a mess, but I feel like they're an accurate map of how I got to whatever, you know, the end result is. I've tried. I mean, I could just be old too. I mean, I've tried to just go straight to the computer and it just doesn't work. Like it doesn't work for me at all. Heard. Uh, I want to <laughs> congratulate you on receiving an inaugural Playwrights Foundation launch and being celebrated along the iconic Lauren Gunderson. Can you tell me a little bit about that celebration in May and what the feeling in that room was? Yeah, it was a really beautiful experience. And again, it was a moment of alignment for me. It it all, it sort of magically um, fell on a 10-year anniversary of the first sort of thing that I got, which really, you know, is nothing. But when you're a playwright that has nothing, it's sort of everything was that I was a finalist for Playwrights Foundation's Playwright Festival 10 years ago. And that was sort of, you know, just making it to a finalist was really like the biggest thing in my world at that time. And I had and I had actually communicated that to my DJ friend, Juan Amador. And that was why he invited me to come check out Klika, you know, because I was like, yeah, I, I thought I was going to get it. I was a finalist. I'm kind of bummed. I'm kind of happy. I don't know. You know, and he was like, well, let me read it kind of thing. So flash forward 10 years later and Playwrights Foundation is giving me this sort of inaugural launch award. Sean San Jose was presenting the award to me. Um, Juan was in the audience and it was just, it was just one of, it was a full circle moment, but it was also one of those reminders that when you have your head down and you're just grinding and trying to get to this place of success, whatever marker you have for reaching that success, I think a lot of times you miss how far you've come. You know, you've missed those miles, you know, clocking those miles, letting them in. So that was a moment where I, you know, I stood on that stage and I was just like, wow, you know, this is, this has been a decade of my life has led to this moment and is connected to the people in this room. And it was, um, I definitely felt loved on and celebrated. And um, Jessica Bird Beza, who runs Playwrights Foundation, instead of giving us, you know, like a little plastic award or a plaque, what she did was she got these notebooks and she they passed out um, like post-its to everyone in the audience. They did this for everyone who was honored. They passed out post-its and they asked the audience to write notes to us. And it could be like a personal note. If you knew us, um, we all each read an excerpt of our work as well. So some people in the audience were, weren't 
necessarily familiar with my work. That was, you know, me reading a few pages was the first they'd heard. So it was just like, you know, you can respond to what the playwright just read. If you knew, know them, you can offer encouragement. Just write some sort of note, you know, to the playwright. So Jessica collected them all and she glued them into this, you know, nice leather bound notebook and gave it to me a couple of weeks later. And it was just so beautiful and human in the best way. People, uh, I had read an excerpt from Josephine's piece, you know, it was a monologue from the mother, Josephine. And so some people were writing to me just saying how much that resonated with them, that they couldn't wait to come see the play. Some people were telling me, you know, I've seen something that you did years ago. I was really touched by it. Other notes were more personal, but it was just, I just had the biggest smile. And I really, and again, I felt community in a very concrete way, just energetically through, through the ways that these people, some I knew, some I'd never met before had, had chosen to express themselves and sort of send some warm energy, encouraging energy my way. And it's something that, you know, I'll have forever. And Jessica had said, like, if you're ever feeling down or, you know, wondering what's next, just go back and, you know, read that notebook. So it was a beautiful experience. And then I left. It was so surreal. I got to leave this gathering, this honoring. And then I'm driving to go to rehearsals for Josephine's Feast, you know, and I just I felt like I was floating. It just felt like a dream to to be in my city doing what I love to do and, and just have it all sort of popping and clicking at the same time. Like, you know, like I said earlier, this year has been very special for me. It's just been a lot of uh, sort of a harvest, you know, a lot of things blooming that I've been working on a long time and just, just feeling and, and experiencing the flowering of that. It's so amazing to hear uh, how it, it seems that you're just profoundly aligned artistically right now and I love that imagery of harvesting that just and savoring right like taking a moment to be like I have come this far I have sometimes we do need that external validation right of someone saying you deserve this here here are dozens of people's post-its about how amazing you are and you have this and you can access this one Ever you need to. Yeah, it, it is. And that's and the thing is, that's really not my personality. Like, I don't know if it has to do with like my astrology sign or like childhood trauma or what the reason is, but I'm somebody that's like, I'm not going to sit there and like heap praise on myself. I'm not necessarily looking for the spotlight. And I really am often just getting to the next thing. Like, okay, that was done good. You know, how can I be better? Okay, what's the next thing? So this was for me. a a real slowing down. And like you said, a savoring in a way that I don't think, you know, I would have done on my own or activated on my own in any way. And, and it was really, it was really needed. You know, it was something I needed and didn't, and didn't even know. And so it was just a gift on so many levels. Absolutely. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. I want to take us out on one last question And that question is what, as imperfect as theater can be in our Mm -hmm. industry, in our landscape right now, what excites you? What sparks that? I love that imagery of change on a molecular level 
potentially with audiences, but what's exciting for you right now in the current landscape? I'm actually really excited by the work of uh, some of the members in my melon cohort, Virginia Grease down in, I, think, I believe she's, I know she's in Texas. I believe she's either in San Antonio or Houston. She just did a work that was sort of multidisciplinary site specific uh, where she wrote text and she was working with live musicians and people in costumes. And it was, you know, beside this river and I only saw, you know, images of it, but I could feel, you know, the, the hair standing up on my arms just of like, oh yeah, this is in a new zone. You know, this is in a, in a whole other realm of activating text and, and space and nature and creativity, you know, and another person uh, in my cohort is Saimukta Vongsai and she's in Minnesota and she's a Lao poet. And she just did a series of like readings or workshops for a piece that she's working on called In the Camps, a Refugee Musical. And she was saying that she believes it's the first time that it's like a Laotian playwright, director, all Southeast Asian actors. And she made a point to really invite all of the eld- all of the Lao elders in her community to come and see this and there were like pop-up markets on different nights and that kind of thing. So I'm just really inspired by people who are sort of pushing boundaries, reimagining possibilities uh, and finding ways to activate the space that we inhabit, you know, open it up. Like what is (laughs) the surface is not all there is, you know, at all. And that surface of normalcy is held in place by a lot of violence uh, and control and oppression. So I just, I just really love people who find ways to sort of unzipper and lift the veil and let it all spill out and, you know, allow, allow an audience to experience not only the piece, but hopefully experience themselves in a new way. That is beautifully said. I hope our listeners take every opportunity to experience your work when they can encounter it, we'll make sure to link to your webisode in our episode description. Thank you so much for being a guest. This was supremely delightful. Thank you. I really needed, you know, this this sort of, I, I really feel nourished by this conversation. And thank you. Thank you for listening to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Woodzik. This podcast is distributed by American Theatre Magazine, and this episode was edited by Travis Rosemary Kerhart fishbach Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back here next month for more interviews with artists and cultural trailblazers.